0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week
1: on the podcast, I have a special guest. My friend Paul Vigna has been a reporter with The Wall Street Journal for 120 years. He is the author of multiple books on blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. This is an area that is quite fascinating and a little bit wonky. And if you are at all interested in a crash course I heartily recommend both of his books, or you could spend the next 90 minutes listening to us chat about all sorts of things involving Bitcoin. And to be honest, it's really me asking Paul questions and him taking me to school about uh, some of the details, history, minutia uh, about Bitcoin. I am really intrigued at how he breaks the entire blockchain slash Bitcoin discussion into three distinct groups. The first is the underlying software, the technology of the distributed ledger, aka blockchain. Uh, that's one. The second is really the fascinating group of um, cyberpunks and libertarians and and just generally kind of wacky dudes. And it's mostly dudes who um, become enamored of Bitcoin in the early days and help take it viral from this uh, open source software program to really a, a full-blown phenomena and, and now arguably a, a bubble in in the actual coins itself. And that's the third part. The bitcoins, the transactions, the mania surrounding the trading, that's a different issue than either the people behind it or or the technology underlying it. I found the conversation fascinating. I think you will also with no further ado my conversation with Paul Vigna.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Paul Vigna. For the past 20 years, he has been a journalist covering markets and the economy for such august outfits as dow jones and the wall street journal he is the co-author with michael casey of two fascinating books on blockchain and bitcoin his first book was the age of cryptocurrency how bitcoin is challenging the global economy and his latest book the truth machine blockchain and the future of everything was just released to excellent reviews paul Vigna. Welcome to Bloomberg, Barry Ritholtz. How are you? Very, very well. Let Let's jump right in to the Bitcoin conversation. You know more about this than just about anybody I know. That's a totally untrue statement. <laughs> I, well, you don't know I, know. I know some.
2: I know some about it.
1: Well, you don't know the people I know, and apparently everybody else knows That's less true. than you. So wow. it's a, a flawed it's data set. All which circles you run running. That's right. But let me ask you this question. What was the initial idea behind the entire concept of Bitcoin? The initial idea, the so this comes out in
2: October 2008, some guy named Satoshi Nakamoto, nobody knows who he is. Right. Is releases, that a real name? Is that a pseudonym? It's, a pseudonym. it's yep. a pseudonym. Nobody knows what his real name is, who he is, if it's a team of people, you know, it's a, it's a whole mystery. So this white paper comes out, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, Bitcoin, A uh, I forget the exact title, but basically the point is... What he is creating is a digital version of cash. So in other words, if you're a shopkeeper and I come in for a cup of coffee or whatever, I hand you a $5 bill. That is the transaction. What Nakamoto was trying to do was replicate that transaction digitally on the
1: Internet. Meaning no paper, no credit card, no banks. No paper, no
2: credit card, and also an immediate transaction between just you and I, that nobody else
1: sees. No third party, no no government, no banks, no credit card, nobody. Exactly. Just just buyer and seller. Right,
2: just buyer and seller, Mm peer-to-peer, electronic money. That was the
1: original idea. Sounds like a good idea. It Sounds like a good idea. Sounds like a simple idea, right? And and remember, this is 2008. We're right in the middle of the financial crisis where confidence in banks and governments are at record lows. Right. So- all right, so he comes up, publishes this white paper. How do you get from a... And where was the white paper published? You oh, know? he just released it online. Just released on, it on the to, internet. Uh,
2: originally, it was to this... Uh, I think it was on an, an email list, sir. You know, one of those
1: distribution right. lists. Yeah. So, so how do you get from a white paper to an right. actual blockchain technology and a coin that starts to appreciate in value so, almost immediately? So what
2: the white paper was describing was a computer program. And the, the goal of the computer program was to create this digital money, this peer to peer electronic version of cash. So he releases the white paper in October 2008 and puts the program online. So he set up the program. It was not yeah, more than a white paper. Pro- it was more paper. than a white paper. It was a paper describing what he was doing. He wrote the program, too. Puts the program online in January of 2009 as an open source project where and anyone is open to participate in building it.
1: So let's describe that. So building the software or building the coins themselves? Well, the software. Okay. So, you know,
2: he releases version 0.0 of Bitcoin. And what he is looking for are collaborators. He's looking for people to come on and help develop the program. In other Mm -hmm. words, again, you know, a company like Microsoft, like Apple, whatever, they have teams of developers and buildings, yeah, thousands. This is a a different kind of version of that. You're talking about developing a software program but you're looking for collaborators like linux online. and like and those right, right. Sort of linux things. is a great example right. of it of, of an open source program mm-hmm. so that's what he releases and again it's it's very key i think that you mentioned this is all happening during the financial crisis right this is a time where the the existing financial infrastructure has shown that it is just hopelessly conflicted hopelessly corrupted in this filled lot, with problems th- f- filled, we could do a whole Radio show on just that.
1: Could write a book on it. it could write a book on it. Yes, yeah, so, some of us have,
2: right? Bailout Nation. <laughs> people are interested in alternatives. The existing, the, the warts of the existing system have been shown. People are looking for an alternative. He comes up with an alternative and people take to it. And it kind of goes viral. It takes a little while, but inside this community of, uh, they call them cypherpunks, you know, right. anarchists, libertarians, coders, tinkerers, this small clack. This thing does go viral, and it starts getting this community very quickly. Around. Initially, a lot of skepticism, but mm-hmm. once it goes live and they see it working, people start coming on. And in, and originally, what you have is a lot of, again, tinkerers, programmers, anarchists, cypherpunks, this small group. It grows within that. probably takes a couple of years until it starts hitting the mainstream.
1: So let's talk about that period yeah. before it ramps into the mainstream. You download the software- you you want to create coins, so you have to solve a complicated mathematical problem, and there's only a finite number of potential coins twenty one right. million coins. So, is that right? W- w-
2: what Bitcoin has, it's really actually, and, and to the degree to the degree that I understand coding and programming at all, uh, it, it's really it's a very elegant program. Mm-hmm. The idea is to create. A, a program that can support a currency, a digital currency that does not need a centralized party controlling it. Mm-hmm. In other words, you don't have a computer company running the software and responsible for it. You don't have a government or a bank running the software responsible for the software and the currency. You have to come up with a way to create a system that can opt, that can be self self-sustaining by this sort of decentralized group of people. So Within that, there are a bunch of ways that he there are a bunch of levers that he pulls to make that happen. One of them is you you want to you want to you want people to come on board. You want people to download the software. You want people to run it. You need people to run the software for the program to work. Obviously, right? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How do you entice people to contribute their computing power to a volunteer project? Well, one way you do it is you reward them. What do you reward them with? Bitcoin. So. The way Bitcoin is created is you download the software. You are contributing your computing power to the network. What you are really doing is you are confirming transactions. That's sort of the live operation of this software is you and I trade, right? So my mobile app on my phone, uh, I use to send you five Bitcoin. Now five Bitcoin would be like $100,000. I'm not sending you that.
1: But back then back then it was pennies. How did that leap from that period to bursting into the mainstream? So the, the program is released in
2: 2009, 2009, 2010. It is, like I said, this small group of coders, tinkerers, programmers, anarchists, libertarians, cyberpunks. Uh, and the the currency, and, and you know, it's funny, people argue, is it a currency, is it not? Whatever, I'm going to call it a currency for right. now. Um, it really had no actual value, right? I mean, it was it was a program that these guys were using. There was nothing in the real
1: world you could do with it. You the, could argue that any currency's value is only the populace's willingness to assign it a value. If, well, of course, right? I, I mean, yeah. And so, so no currency has a value unless people are willing to use it as a right. medium of exchange. Exactly. Right.
2: Uh, the the very first time Bitcoin gets used to buy something in the real world is 2010. This programmer in Florida, uh, this programmer in Florida, says that he on a on a message board he says I will give anyone ten thousand Bitcoin if you'll buy me two pizzas. So in other words, he wants to show that Bitcoin can be used to buy things, but he can't do it directly because no one's going to take Cause, Bitcoin.
1: Because to start out, it's just amongst that. It's small just among group that of group, of uh, the pizza places don't have a Bitcoin right. swipe here for Bitcoin.
2: So this guy, and it's a pretty famous story, you know, he he has this open offer. He says, I'll give anyone 10,000 Bitcoin if you buy me two pizzas. And he does that for about two weeks. And people are sending pizzas to his house and he's sending them 10,000. Multiple pizzas. Multiple pizzas. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the first one was, I forget, it was early in May. And then he kept this thing open for about two weeks and he probably, you know, spent about 200,000 Bitcoin on it which is today a fortune.
1: Oh, my God.
2: But that was the first time that it was proven that you could actually use this to buy something in the real real world. It could actually work as a currency. At that point, it starts changing. Now people realize there's something here. And, of course, at the very beginning, it's really only being used uh, basically on the dark web, right? I mean, people who want to buy and sell things... Illegally? Illegally, so illicitly. So
1: here was the early criticism that I recall yeah. hearing about. This is used for drugs. This is used for human trafficking. This is used to buy hit men. This is used for all sorts of nefarious things, and therefore it'll never be a credible well, product.
2: I mean, the answer to that is... There are two answers to that. The first answer is, yes, it is being used for that, but that is not... The main, it really isn't the main use of it. It's still there. And look, we're in the media. We love sensational stories and we tell those stories. But it really is a very small percentage of overall Bitcoin traffic. And, and
1: the other pushback but is the other pushback dollars is, are used for thing. So same is exact the dollar. Thing, right? So right. is the year.
2: I mean, every currency right. is used. You know, uh, so does it that's make not it corrupt? really a it's criticism just... of Bitcoin. That's a mm-hmm. criticism of currency. Uh, of humans so, for that matter. Yeah, right. So uh, 2010, 2011, 2012, people start realizing this can be used to buy and sell things.
1: And what is the price of Bitcoin back then? Oh, I
2: think uh, it's in the single dollars. Okay. It's in the single dollar. I mean, if we pulled up the chart, we could find
1: I'm out. I'm going to do that as uh,
2: it's in the, it It is in single dollars. Around the same time, and we don't have to go into the whole history, but anyhow, in, in 2012, it starts getting out of this small sort of cypherpunk uh programmer community and it starts permeating a little bit into the mainstream really into sort of more the 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 tech press the tech mainstream from there probably around 2013 it starts hitting the mainstream mainstream because i remember first reading about it in in early 2013
1: july 2012 it finally gets over ten dollars right exactly wow ten
2: dollars right so in 2013, it, it kind of has its first wave of mainstream uh, awareness.
1: Right. Almost runs by November of that year. It's just under $1,000. Right. It goes Which in crazy. and of itself is a great run from 10 bucks. Now, you
2: know, also, remember, too, and, and your audience will appreciate this, and you will, too. The thing you have to keep in mind when you're talking about Bitcoin and the price of it. You have to keep in mind that this is still a relatively small market, a relatively illiquid market, and it is a relatively one-way market. There's,
1: meaning you could buy it, but it's very hard to actually convert that into cash. Yeah. It's, well, it's difficult to convert it into cash. It's difficult to sell
2: it. Uh, it it you know, they're, they're, look, they are just starting to build derivative products. They're just starting to build different, more, more, you know, intricate ways to bet on Bitcoin. Things that are in the market right now. Mm-hmm. It is also a market that runs twenty-four-seven. Mm-hmm. Has no, there's no closing bell. There's no circuit breakers. It goes in whatever direction it is uh, going. It is the
1: wild west. It of It is trading. the
2: wild west of trading. If you like open markets, there has never been a more open market than this. You ha- so you have to keep that in mind when you're talking about the price. The price can go in crazy directions because of those reasons. Mm-hmm. But in 2013, it goes from 10 to 180, back down or whatever. Then it, you know, in the, the second half of the year it goes up to almost 1000. You have a, uh, an exchange called Mt. Gox which uh-huh. was handling about 70 or 80% of all the trading. And Mt. Gox was a terribly created financial uh, exchange. Right. It was just bad. It was not they called not it secure. Ex- not secure <laughs> not well-built, not well-constructed, and all the money's going through it. So the liquidity there is almost nothing. So when Mount Gox shuts down and you can't get your money out easily, what do you do to get your money out? Well, you got to offer higher prices. Mm-hmm. Really higher
1: prices. To, so that's to, a big reason to why- To buy or to up sell, up sell up, you mean? To, to sell. So you're offering higher prices to sell, or lower? I would think you're offering lower prices to sell. The, the only
2: way you can get it out, because withdrawals were limited. Right. So, it, and it was- Thin. There was not a lot of liquidity. So, you, you know, you got to entice people to sell. So you're offering higher prices. So the price goes flying up. Right. Uh, 2014, it kind of comes down a little bit. Now you're now you're starting to get more and more in the mainstream. People are seeing it. And you what you have, though, is, again, still lo- It's still completely a volunteer community. I mean, this thing is just being built by volunteers, by volunteer coders. You're starting to have some people realize that there's money to be made here, and you're starting to have people try to build businesses on top of Bitcoin. Uh-huh. And that was sort of the... 2014.
1: 2014,
2: 2013. Um, and that was sort of the first time you have some infrastructure being put around this computer program that I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. And importantly, too, I think there are... I think there are a couple of things that you have to keep in mind when you're talking about Bitcoin. And I think this is why people kind of get so screwed up about it. There are really three main things. There, And again, this is one of the reasons why I love this so much as a writer. There are so many angles. There are so many stories. You have to keep in mind a couple of things. One, this is a computer program. Mm-hmm. That is really what this is. If Microsoft in 2009 had said, hey, you know what? We've come out with a, a new feature on Excel that will allow people to run a shared database. That will be all All your transactions that you put onto this database will be recorded, an exact copy will be distributed to everybody in real time, and it will be cryptographically secure, it will be impossible to counterfeit, to create false entries, it is an open source, a transparent database that an entire community can run and can feel confident that it's real and well, you would have said, OK, that's nice. And Microsoft probably would have done well. And you would have said, oh, Satya has come up with a new product. You know, he's really doing a good job over at Microsoft. And that would have been the end of it. Right. It would have been a nice program. Right. However, what you have with Bitcoin is you have the program, you have the time that it was released, like you said, people looking for an alternative way to do things. So you have this sort of viral community grow up around it. I, personally, I think Bitcoin is one of the three big social movements that erupted out of 2008. You had the Tea Party, you had Occupy, and you have Bitcoin. Hmm. Bitcoin is a social movement, and that is why people are so passionate about it. This is not just a computer program. This is not just digits, ones and zeros. This is a new way to build finance, to build a financial infrastructure.
1: That's fascinating. Let's talk a bit about your career as a journalist covering markets and the economy, and how that morphed into your coverage on uh, Bitcoin. How did you get into financial journalism? What what led you to your first uh, first gig?
2: Oh my God! Well, I mean, it it was quite simply it was money. Mm -hmm. but but not for the reason that you might think most people get into finance i was just look i was working at a a weekly newspaper i had done been there a few years making no real money you make no money at community journalism it's it's fun it's a good place to learn the ropes but i mean you make no money at it so i needed a job where i could make some money dow jones was hiring it was a doc it was 1997 so everybody was was hiring everybody (laughs) was hiring dow jones was hiring editors so i Took the editing test. I passed the editing test. I knew nothing about finance. I did not go to school for finance. Really? I didn't, no, no. I didn't study it at all. Uh, I that's l- interesting. I literally passed the editing test, so they hired me as an editor. And my first job was rewriting press releases. And that's what I did. That's how I started out, rewriting press releases. How
1: did you end up at uh? what was... So for you youngins out there, there used to be yeah. ILX terminals and other such um, quote machines... And the news feed would have a constant stream of, of stories. But my favorite feed back in the 90s was Dow Jones Market Talk, which were all these little blurby stories about right. what was going on in the market. It was Twitter before there was Twitter. For, it was finance Twitter before there was such a thing. Right. Um, how, how did you find your way to uh, Dow Jones Market Talk?
2: So I spent a. Few years on what was called the spot news desk, doing that press release rewrite job, which was actually another great education in in journalism and finance. Really, it sounds yeah. horrific to me. It, well, it was. I mean, it was a total. It was it was a grind. I mean, yeah. it was it was a. Factory. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. but you learn a lot about finance. You're constantly looking at what companies are telling you. And if you're, if you're being discerning about it, you're trying to find the holes in it. You right. know? So I learned a lot about finance doing that. Then I spent a few years on the editing desk. And then I had a friend who was on Market Talk.
1: Which which really was my favorite. I missed that from back I, in the time. I
2: loved... Well, we still do Market Talk. I don't think they publish it in quite the same no. way. So They used to publish it on the web, and then they stopped. I know. So in 2005, now I've been there a while. In 2005, I started at Market Talk... Uh, with John Shipman and it was oh, sure it was great it was just the two of us mm-hmm. it was it was actually a great job because you're right I think our limit was a hundred words right not on these characters hundred words right so it' was these tight little commentaries on which what's is going about on in the a market. tweet today yeah exactly right so that was that was how I kind of got out of editing and into writing and I did that for probably seven years mm-hmm. again another great education Write fast write analytically and write short mm-hmm. that was it that was our only kind of remit and i did that for a long time loved it john and i had a great time doing it we were kind of left out on our own in the newsroom nobody, nobody bothered, really bo- you. No one bothered you could,
1: us you could see that by the the it had right. a voice it had a voice which you very yes. often don't get
2: right and the voice was my voice and john's voice and from that i moved over to one of the blogs and then in 2013 i heard about bitcoin and my first reaction to bitcoin was this is an online scam." This is an internet joke. We are not writing about this. We're not writing about this. This Because I was going to ask you, so
1: so how much Bitcoin did you buy at $10? Well, I was going (laughs) to ask you. The answer is zero. Right.
2: So my first reaction was probably what everyone's reaction is, is that this is some kind of scam. And I thought, we're not writing about this. No way but it, like i said earlier it was starting to permeate into the mainstream you're starting to hear more and more about it and the more and more i heard about it the more i read about it and then i started to become interested and at the time now this is 2013 this is the spring of 2013 at the time the the wall street journal had nobody writing about bitcoin mm-hmm. and but i was most writing... entities had nobody writing exactly about bitcoin. i was writing for our money beat blog mm-hmm. And so I had a pretty, I had pretty wide latitude in what I wanted to write about. My, my coverage was the markets. It was the markets and the economy. So I could write about anything within that. So which is pretty just, much everything. Which is pretty much, right, exactly. Which, which was great. So because I had that latitude to write about whatever I wanted to write about and I was starting to get interested in Bitcoin, I started writing some Bitcoin posts. And I did that for a few months. And in the summer of 2013, I went to a conference here in the city. It was called Inside Bitcoins. So it was a one-day conference at the New Yorker. And it was the first time that I'd ever been around Bitcoin people. And again, it was a small conference. They had like, you know, one one room, you know, one, one conference room, a couple hundred people. Uh, there was a lobby outside, maybe a dozen, 12 or 15 tables set up with little businesses. But it was, again... The first time I had ever been around these people, these Bitcoiners. So, so two questions. Yeah.
1: One is, what was the response to the blog post you were doing on Bitcoin before that conference? And then second, how did what what was the impact of the conference on you?
2: So you're talking about the reaction uh, among so, readers or the newsroom? Readers. Oh, both. Readers, not much. The, you know what's funny is readers, not much, and the newsroom, not much. You know, there was enough interest among the editors that they said, "Yeah, go ahead, write that. It's it's probably worth us putting a little something out." There's something going on there, but nobody
1: knows what it is. Exactly right. And I think, and then how did the conference
2: affect you? Well, the conference affected me in that what I got out of that conference was this incredible energy of this group of people, and the ideas were flying around, and the it was very utopian, very pie in the sky. But again, you have to remember all of this. I'm coming to as a writer. I'm not an investor. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not looking to make money. I, I'm looking to write good story, interesting stories. And I realize that there are tremendous stories to be told here.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I want. I'm. I'm comfortable getting into the weeds here, but before we do, let let's start out a little basic. Um, what is a digital distributed ledger?
2: So that is that's sort of the, that is the heart of the Bitcoin program, and it has come to be called by a couple of different names. you call it distributed ledger technology, blockchain technology, just blockchain. But what it essentially is is a program that is designed to maintain this online ledger. It's a live ledger that is not operated from any one central server. In other words, JP Morgan has a ledger of every transaction that they but undertake. That's to but them. it's on JP Morgan's servers and JP Morgan maintains it and only JP Morgan can see it. What does it track? What does it keep well, count but of? Well, before we even get into that, uh, just what this is is a a program that can run on any number of computers. Every computer that is running the program live has an identical copy of the ledger. Every transaction that goes into that ledger gets updated on every single computer at the, basically at the same time. The transactions are secured cryptographically, mm-hmm. so it's virtually impossible to change them. So what you have is a live transaction history that is transparent because it's on any number of computers and anybody can see it, and it is impossible to change. That's what it essentially is. So that now, means
1: that means it's a legitimate record of each transaction. Exactly. And it's theoretically unhackable. Right.
2: And Bitcoin's blockchain has never been hacked. You hear a lot of stories about hacking in, in this world. It's always some company that got right. hacked.
1: Like Mt. Gox. Is like Mt. Gox design. got hacked.
2: Or someone's wallet got broken into. That's possible too. But the the ledger itself, the transaction history, has never been attacked. It's been attacked. It has never been hacked. Now, you said, what can you do with that? Well, the question is, and that's why you have this sort of explosion in interest. The answer is anything that can be digitized and recorded and tracked, potentially, these are still early days, potentially could be done with this program. So in other words, the first application of this technology was Bitcoin. Let's track a peer-to-peer transfer, a transaction exchange, value exchange. It's a currency. Uh, could you use it for land registries could you use it for identification could you there are uh, so many things now that people realize that you can use this for potentially can artists use it to protect their copyright and maybe make some money and and track where things you know their their works are being used
1: so anything that's transacted digitally you could keep a perfect so a perfect example we we were talking about the financial crisis earlier Um, MERS is a sort of unspoken villain of the crisis. This is the electronic registry of mortgages, and they were so overwhelmed with the number of transactions and collateralized mortgages all put into other derivative products that very often when there is a default and people would go to court to defend it, the people who thought they owned the mortgage couldn't prove they right. actually owned the mortgage. If you went to court with a lawyer, you very often won because the people suing you couldn't demonstrate right. they were the appropriate party, they were the mortgage yeah. holder. It's amazing. So it's blockchain amazing. theoretically could solve for something like that. Exactly.
2: And it's, you know, it's amazing. I always think of this, uh, 2007, Lehman Brothers reports, record revenue, record earnings. Best year in the company's history, 2007. Right. 150 years they've been around. 2007, best year. Nine months later, they're out of business. How is that possible?
1: Repo 105. Right. Mortga- total accounting fraud. Exactly. Moving $50 billion in liabilities off the books. Off the books right. Which which to this day, uh, Dick Fuld still claims, was legit, which yeah. is hilarious. Uh, so this is a really interesting
2: program. Essentially what you have is- It
1: would prevent that sort of fraud. It, theoretically. It, it,
2: theoretically- if it was implemented if the industry would accept it as a standard that's the other thing i mean one big uh problem for the banking industry is that this is too transparent too transparent of course it is i mean you know listen you've been in the markets a long time i mean you know that information and having it and having it before other people and op- opacity are all
1: virtues if you're trading they are a feature not a bug exactly you can you could charge higher prices by bamboozling people and right. making things that are simple, right. sound complex, right. and eliminating transparency. And, and, and creating in opacity.
2: 2015, when the banks started experimenting with this, they were all interested in it. And they're going to have their blockchain labs and everyone's going to build something. Yeah,
1: whatever happened with that? Well,
2: what happened was they all realized it was way too transparent. <laughs> and so they, no, really. And, and it really held things up. And now people are trying to build things that are sort of, that, that will operate among a bunch of, say, financial institutions. Right. But they also are trying to put in checks so that nobody's order book is is visible to anybody else. Huh, so you can make. So, so they're trying to figure that
1: out. So let's talk about this exact subject. What are some of the legitimate uses for blockchain, and how likely is it that we're going to see implementations at banks, insurers, brokers of this sort of technology? I, I,
2: I think eventually we, we will, and I think the reason I think. I think there are two reasons why Bitcoin kind of took off the way it did and why this technology is being so looked at the way it is. One is certainly just sort of the viral nature of it, the panic of 2008, the idea that we could have an alternative way. Uh, and, and that was a reason. But the other reason, I think the more important reason is just that this technology fits our lifestyle today. We are digital. We are online. We are doing things across borders, across time zones, across continents. And this is a program that will allow you to track things across borders, across time zones, across continents, and to do things live and to do things in, in I hate saying the word real time, but real time. And it's one feature of the Internet when it was first built in the 90s that one feature that it didn't have was an easy way to uh, exchange value to to do currency transactions. So, what gets built onto the internet, of course, are all the sort of existing, you know, third party credit card, system, transactions, credit card transactions. You're pun- literally right. punching in a credit card. You're literally card punching number. in a credit card. And because you're doing this over such great distances and it's harder to, to verify identity, you have an entire industry that grows up around that, right? You have VeriSign, you have all these third party providers who will take your information. Validate it mm-hmm. and allow you to do the credit card transaction. Bitcoin kind of takes that, and and blockchain technology takes that and sort of uh, flattens it and makes it all one transaction. Replaces it. Replaces so, it.
1: So the transaction, the verification and validation, the validation. and the exchange of value right. all happen in one. That is it exactly.
2: You don't sound like a skeptic on this, Barry Ritholtz.
1: Well, no, I'm. A, so let's talk about the skepticism. It's not on the blockchain technology. Yeah. And it's a cliche every time you hear someone say, blockchain is fascinating, but I'm skeptical on Bitcoin. Right, right. To me, when I see something rise 2,000% in six months, my experience both in the markets and as a trader is immediately to scream bubble. Yeah. And uh, I got a little lucky in the timing on, on writing something, when should you sell your Bitcoin? Um, and the timing on that is as often luck as anything else. But how, let, let's look at Bitcoin, is Bitcoin, separate from the underlying technology, is that in a bubble if it was $10 in 2013, $1,000 right. in 2015, and now down to $10,000?
2: Well, like I said earlier, there to me there are three huge angles to this whole story. There's the software, which is what is really important and its applications.
1: There's the Which, sort of, by the way, is the thing people talk the least about. Exactly,
2: there is uh, the counterculture movement, the social movement the that I really think I it, think yeah. is a big part of the story. And the third party is the speculative mania, the trading of it. And you know, I, you say, "Is this a bubble?" I don't even know if you. It's almost. Bef- it's such a. It's such a pre thing. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if you can say it's really a bubble. I mean, this, is, it, is this a speculative mania? Without a doubt. I think it is virtually impossible from a fundamental perspective to say what Bitcoin is worth. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, obviously it's worth what anybody will pay for it. I mean, that's the simple answer. So if someone's willing to pay 11000 12000 9000 whatever it is, that's what it's worth. But-
1: at that moment at that moment Th- that's the right. problem with it. Can,
2: can you fundamentally value a technology that has not really been implemented yet no you cannot i mean does bitcoin run is it live do people use it yes absolutely absolutely uh is there a lot that you can do with bitcoin right now no besides trade it i mean really so what you what you have is a a mania a speculative mania for a product that is virtually impossible to fundamentally value. And like I said earlier, still a small market, still a thin market, still a relatively illiquid, liquid market. So you get these crazy volatile swings. So yeah, you're in, in terms of the price, I think your skepticism is a hundred percent on, um, I don't buy Bitcoin because the Wall Street Journal would not want me buying and selling something that I'm right. writing about. I mean, that, it's
1: obvious. Every journalistic operation has rules exactly, about Right. avoiding... You know, you can't go buy a stock and then talk about it or promote it. No, you it. can't be the Apple beat reporter and right. be day
2: trading Apple shares. So it's the same thing. So I, <laughs> right. I don't buy Bitcoin for that reason. But even if the journal didn't have that restriction on me, I personally would not... Buy it anyhow because it is a spec. You're gambling. It's a right. speculative asset. You're betting that it is going to go
1: somewhere and it's going to be something. So and that's you fine probably if you want
2: to do that, but you have to understand what you're doing and what you're doing is just you're you're gambling.
1: So am I assuming too much in saying that you don't believe this belongs in people's four hundred one k or their retirement portfolios?
2: No, and I'm not giving financial advice. Uh, you're just asking me a question. I mean, does an unbelievably speculative asset belong in a 401k, which is essentially a retirement portfolio. My answer is no. And I don't think anybody else would say, nobody should say, let's put it this way, nobody should say yes to that.
1: We have been speaking with Paul Vigna. He is the co-author, along with Michael Casey, of Truth Machine, Blockchain and the Future of Everything. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things cryptocurrency Uh, be sure and check out my daily column you can find that on bloombergview.com follow me on twitter at ritholtz we love your comments feedback and suggestions write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio So there are so many questions I did not get to during the broadcast portion. Let, let's spend some time on, on those questions before I get to my favorite podcast questions that I ask everybody. Mm, okay. One of the things that I had to ask is, so you write The Age of Crypto in 2015. Mm-hmm. What made you think that there was an audience for a book on crypto.
2: it's interesting cuz the whole thing goes back to that conference in 2013 that I was talking about where I go to this conference and I realize that there's just this tremendous energy around this thing. I realize this is a story to be told. And I go back to the newsroom and I'm talking to another reporter, this guy Dave Benoit, a very good reporter. And I'm telling him about the conference and these crazy people I saw, you know. And he, he he's listening to me and he looks at me and he says that sounds like something Michael Lewis would write a book about. <laughs> End the story. I'm, store, trying, to, I'm trying to snap it. my fingers like bang, light bulb. Oh my god, this is it! And I've been looking for a long time. I wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to write. You know, I wanted to write a book. I never found a good topic. And he said that to me, and I realized I had just been handed a great topic, and nobody else has done it yet. I'm the, like I'm the first one there. Was
1: that was this book literally Age of Cryptocurrency?
2: Was that the first
1: book on this topic?
2: Uh, by the time that went out, a few other people had also written their books. Uh, I don't. I don't remember if Nathaniel Popper's book came out right before or right after ours. But around the same. Around time. the same time, the New York Times is uh Digital Gold. Popper's book and it's a good book too. Digital Gold. Yeah, I shouldn't plug a competitor's book, but whatever. You know, uh, you get a free one from me, Nathaniel. so i mean at that by the time our book came out other people had gotten on to this this idea too that there were books to be written uh but i think popper's book and our book were the first mainstream books the first ones by big publishing houses to go out he
1: was may 26th oh that's the paperback i'm sorry that's the paperback uh, digital Gold, Bitcoin, and the Inside Story of the yeah, Misfits and so, Millionaires Trying to Reinvent Money. Yep, yeah,
2: yeah, that was his book. So anyhow, so 2013, I realized there was a book to be written. I spent a, a lot of time, actually, at the time, I wanted to convince the journal to let me write an ebook. No one else has done this. Let's do this Get fast, it out quick. Get it out quick. And I remember I went home to my wife and I said, I have this great idea. I said, I want to write, I, I'm going to try to do an e-book about Bitcoin. And she said- she slows down and she says let me get this straight she says you want to write a digital book about a fake currency uh, she's i think she said you want to write an electronic book about a digital currency right and i said yeah and she said so you want to write a fake book about a fake currency i said yeah she said all right She's like just go do it i don't want to hear another word until you get a check for me like just she thought it was in, you know crazy um and again you know that's cuz You know, people who grew up on our generation were used to tangible things. Right. So anyhow, I come up with this idea. I try to sell it to the journal. They eventually don't want to do it. Uh, And then by that by that time, Mike Casey, my co-author, had also started getting interested in Bitcoin. So we put our heads together. Mike had written some books. He had an agent. We go to the agent. She loves the idea. And we find a publisher and we sell it. January 2015, it comes out. And so you beat you
1: beat uh, Popper by like five months.
2: Right. So we beat Popper. Yeah. So I guess we were the first mainstream book to. to So
1: here's the question I have with you. My experience with writing a book was that it was like a a Ph.D. You know, it was it it was was your graduate thesis. It was it was exhausting. And uh, immediately after you start getting some sales, and they're like, "How about a follow-up?" It's like, "Go away for a decade." (laughs) You guys turn around and write another book three years later. And I wrote another book in between. That's a lot of book writing for someone who's also writing a regular column in a mainstream paper. I mean,
2: you have to realize, like, I'm a news junkie.
1: Yeah. I'm a news junkie. I I want
2: to write. That's all I want to do. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, I mean, look, it also, it helps tremendously having a co-author. Because what Mike and I would do is... Oh, so you wrote would... two
1: half books, in other words. Yeah. How did you guys split <laughs> well, up Well, the... what we would
2: do is we, we'd we plot out the book, we'd plot out the chapters, we'd, we'd kind of figure out what each chapter's going to be about, and then we'd just split them up. Right. Who's written about this more? Okay, you've done this more, so you do that chapter. I've done this more, I'll take this chapter. Do you each then go back... And then we... So we would write our chapters, then we would send them to each other, edit what we were doing, rewrite what we were doing, send it back to the guy, have him look at it again, then we'd send it to our... Send a, We sent the book in chapters to our editors, which is a little bit unusual. A lot of times you'll just write the whole manuscript and send it to your editor. Right. We were doing this in chapters. So you end up with this crazy dynamic where I'm writing my own chapter. I'm editing something Mike sent me. I'm getting back something that Tim Bartlett, our editor at St. Martin, sent. So you're doing it. it's, It's a little hectic and crazy. But, like I said, if you're a junkie for this kind of stuff, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it really just wasn't. I don't know. I would work during the day. I'd come home. I'd see my wife. I'd see my son. They'd go to bed, and I'd put in a couple hours every night.
1: So you guys did this very Postal Service-like. Are you f- you're familiar with Postal Service, the, the band? No. <laughs> so Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie and yeah. Jenny Lewis, who's been with a number of other sort of alt-country and alt-rock they start writing this music and literally mailing tapes back and forth to each oh. other, and the first Postal Service album is this fascinating combination of odd electronic um, uh, music overlaid with a uh, a sort of alt country mm. sort of yeah. You have to listen to it. It's, yeah. it's actually quite charming, and and once you get past how initially confusing it seems, but they basically did an album the way you guys did the book and today you can do all that digitally and i think
2: the thing too is a lot of people will say to me too like you just said like oh my god i can't believe you wrote a book and you wrote another book two books books. i've written three books since 2015 yeah i I wrote a book about the walking dead too because that's my other sideline right um and people say oh i can't believe you wrote a book i've always wanted to write a book but i can't what i figured out early on is that it is an extremely mechanical process Uh there has to be a lot of thought that goes into it, analytics and you know but That's that's one element of it. The other the writing element is extremely mechanical. And all you do is you say, "Okay, today is today. My deadline is this deadline. I have X number of days to write X number of words. Do the division, do the math, figure out how many words you need to do per day. And you do that every day, no matter how long it takes, how short it takes. If you have a great day and you write 2000 words. Then great, you can you know ratchet back a little bit the next day. If you have a terrible day and you only write a hundred words, you have to you have to amp it up the next day. You have to average that many words every single day until your deadline, and you can do it. It's 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 it's, I, it's I work. Know. It's, it's work, hard. Work. It's work,
1: but you can do it. When when and people- you have to
2: set it out, I think you have to set it out that way because if you set it out as here's my deadline and I need a book and you have nothing, no structure to what you're doing in between. That's how you can kind of get lost in the weeds.
1: When, when people say they want to write a book, what they really mean is they're subconsciously paraphrasing Dorothy Parker. They don't want to write a book. They want to have written a book. Right, right. Because the writing of the book is a lot of it's what a, you described. It is, it's, it's heavy it's, lifting. It's right. a bit of a grind. Exactly. It is.
2: But you seem to have really enjoyed it. Well, I love it. I, lo- I mean, this is... It's funny because I've been in this business since 1991. It was my first journalism Really? Job. Yep, yep.
1: 25 plus years. 25 wow, plus that's years. that's impressive. And
2: for that entire time, I... I always, you know, look, I- anybody, you know, too, like, you want to be the guy at the middle of the story. Right. I've always wanted to be the guy at the middle of the story, and I never was the guy at the middle of the story. And in the, in the journal's newsroom, you would watch the guys and the girls in the middle of the story. And you'd
1: see the other reporters. Who covering a big, breaking a story big breaking where the story, they're the person. big, breaking story where they're the
2: person. They're at the center of attention. They're at the center of the big story. And it's great. And you, you want it. For the first time in my career, I'm that person. And it, a lot of times, you can go a whole career and never be that person. Right, So- I recognize that. I recognize that I'm in a very fortunate place, and that I lucked out in getting interested in this early, mm-hmm. and I kind of set myself up to be that person at the middle of the story, and now I'm there, and I just want to take advantage of it. So I love it. Again, I'm a news junkie. This is what I live for. This is all I want to do. So yeah, right. I'm so, gonna write. So constantly. you have
1: you have two books on on blockchain and cryptocurrency. Yeah. Is there another blockchain book? crypto book, bitcoin book. In you or have you pretty much said everything you need to say about the topic?
2: Uh there's there's probably another book. I don't want to say definitely. It's funny cuz he's you know, it's at at the launch event on that Tuesday night, people were saying to me immediately, "Oh, what's the next book about?" Uh, and we got the, I got the, uh, the check for this book from my publisher and my wife is very happy with the uh-huh. check. Not that it was all the money in the world, but right. it's nice, you know. By the way,
1: if you want to earn a living writing books, if your name isn't Stephen King or Michael Lewis, you're going to you, it's, be, it's, or it's, J.K. It's Rowling, you're right, going right. to be disappointed. You're
2: not going to do it as a full-time thing, right. but, uh. My wife, we got that check, and I, I immediately put it in the bank, and she was happy with that. And she said, "Okay, what's the next, next book about?" <laughs> she's seeing like, the keep, checks. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's like, "You gotta keep working. You gotta produce. You're the you want to be the producer. You gotta go produce." That,
1: that's uh, very funny. I
2: mean, there will be there will definitely be another book. Whether it'll be another Bitcoin book. I I don't know. Mike and I kind of shoot around ideas. There's just so many stories to tell in this. So, yeah, I could definitely see another book coming out of it.
1: So you mentioned the social network of of sort of uh, libertarians and... Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh,
2: Cypherpunks, libertarians, anarchists, programmers, techies. The
1: question that had come up um, from Mike Batnick in my office who helps me put these questions together, is what's the overlap between the crypto enthusiasts and the gold bugs? Because there seem to be oh, some similar... If you were to draw a Venn diagram, right. it feels like the enthusiasm for something that is a speculative um, asset that may or may not be worth you know, a they, whole lot more or a whole lot less they, in a few years, uh, they, they seem to have similar characteristics. They
2: do. And the interesting thing about both the gold bugs and the bitcoiners is you can make a rational argument that you know the world's an imperfect place and if you're investing in this world things are going to go up and things are going to go down Mm -hmm. and you should probably have a hedge against bad times what's that hedge well gold is is you know traditionally been a store of value and you know stable asset you should have a little bit of gold in your portfolio uh Bitcoin, they're trying to set up as a digital version of that. So, if you're looking to have a hedge against the world, something that when everything else goes down, this is sort of stable over here, and it's a little different. It might go. You can you can make that as a sort of rational argument, but it it gets that message gets lost somewhere. There's a reason they call them gold bugs Mm -hmm. because they get crazy about it. And the Bitcoin people, they get crazy about it. And suddenly you go from this sort of rational argument about, well, you should have a hedge against bad times. It might be this right. to gold is everything and the world is terrible. Bitcoin's right. everything in the world is terrible. And so th- they do have a sort of similar psychology in that they get so caught up in the idea that the world is terrible and everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And we're just waiting for the next crash that you should put everything Nobody should ever put everything into gold or Bitcoin, I mean I think that's insane. Right. But it sometimes kind of feels like that's their argument.
1: So it's not their argument. My belief, and I am obviously biased. My belief is that is their post hoc rationalization. Maybe, Since they yeah. own all this gold, right? And if the world goes to hell, gold or maybe Bitcoin is worth a whole lot more. They start internalizing the concept that it's not, I own gold because there's a possibility of the world going to hell. It's, I own gold. The world has already gone to hell, and therefore this gold right. should be worth so much. So we, and listen, yeah. everybody does it. We all lie to ourselves. The easiest person to fool is yourself. Sure. Um, Talk yourself into and out of everything. Ab- absolutely. Right. And so you you end up with, so, so that's what I, I kind of find fascinating is, there's not a cold, calculating. What is the value? Here's a price-to-book ratio. Exactly. Now right. filter for these. It's uh, we don't know what this value is, but I'm so emotionally in tied up in it. Yeah. Not only my personal net worth, but my sense of self and how smart I think I am, and therefore yep. this proves it. You're right. All, all yeah, you're objectivity right goes goes right. out the window, and that's why I kind. I think Mike was looking at them as, "Hey, here are some very similar characteristics with." two distinct groups so the next question is what sort of overlap is there in terms of are the crypto people also holding gold and vice versa or have those two groups never the twain shall meet I mean I'm sure part?
2: there are people in this world who are holding bitcoin and gold but, but I think the real bitcoin you know uh, aficionados mm-hmm. they think bitcoin is the better gold so they're probably not you know they're not holding bitcoin and gold they're just holding bitcoin the people who are doing it are probably people who are gold people who think, oh, maybe I will- They're going to hedge two. their gold with right. Bitcoin. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs>
1: um, so let's talk about some of the companies that have grown up around this. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned Mt. Gox, which very famously blew up after right. it was hacked. and I want to say $100 million or something yeah, crazy. I, I think they lost-, 40 million? lost. Initially, they lost
2: 800,000 Bitcoin. They later recovered 200,000 Bitcoin. And what's interesting is, so they lost 600,000 Bitcoin, which at the time, I think it was worth 400 million, something like that. Uh, The crazy thing now that they're trying to figure out, too, is that that 200,000 that they recovered is now worth more than everything they lost. Wow, that's amazing. So who gets it? Who gets it?
1: They have to distribute it equally. Do the creditors get it? I don't know. Does the
2: company hold it? Do you sell it at what it was worth in 2014? Do you sell it at what it's worth now? You know, like, this has become a whole different issue with Mt. Cox. But Mt. Cox was basically a one-man company. It Uh was a guy who had bought a website from another guy and just set it up. And because there were no real exchanges, it just got all that traffic. Uh, It was never really a very well-thought-out company.
1: Uh, What is Coinbase.
2: Coinbase is another company that started in 2012, and initially, I think they were just trying to build Bitcoin wallets. So anyhow, so in other words- And a
1: wallet is a place to safely, it's a digital account. securely it's where hold you, your it's, Bitcoin. Yes, yeah, where you hold your Bitcoin. Although apparently, lots of these have gotten hacked over the years. Well, you, you know- Not Coinbase necessarily. The interesting necessarily. thing
2: about Bitcoin is that one of the core ideas was that you are your own bank. You are holding your own money. You are responsible for your own money. You are not putting your money at a bank and then the bank gets to do whatever it wants with your money. You have it. So your wallet, your digital wallet, your account, that is like that's the equivalent of your bank account. You are in control of it, though. So you have to secure it. You have to make sure that the security measures are there. You have to hold the private key, the, the account number to it.
1: Never mm-hmm. lose it. If you lose it, it is gone. You are the forever. only
2: person forever. You're the only person with access to it. There's so some, if you
1: lose the key, it's gone. There's been some estimates that 20 plus percent of Bitcoin keys have been lost and that money is gone.
2: Yeah. Which again gets to my whole point I was making earlier about liquidity. I mean, if a quarter of all the Bitcoin that exists can never trade, that's huge. But anyhow, Coinbase started out building a wallet. They have grown. They now have an exchange. I think they do some, uh, and you know, enterprise business. They work with companies trying to implement Bitcoin processes and everything. Uh, they have become probably you could safely say the premier Bitcoin mm-hmm. company. I mean, they've kind of gotten into the mainstream. At one point last year in 2017, their online app was the number one app in the Apple Store. That, it rose amazing. to the top. Uh, estimates are they made a billion dollars last year. They're making a lot of... I mean, a lot of money now, people are realizing, is in operating as a quote-unquote exchange. Now, I don't want to say quote-unquote for Coinbase. They're a regulated company. Uh, They registered with the New York Department of Financial Services. But a lot of these exchanges are quote-unquote exchanges. They're just websites where people are trading back and forth. But there's a lot of money to be made in that. So right now... The big money is being made by you know offering trading services.
1: The Tel Aviv company, let's see if I can pronounce this right. Commuter is commuters, I think
2: it is. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, I'll, you know, a lot of these companies will come up, and you have to realize that these are startups. Mm. They have ideas, but they have to build it and implement it, survive, find revenue to a build a business. Right. Right coinbase started in 2012 there are a lot of companies that started in 2012 that didn't make it coinbase made it they built a business uh, commuters is an interesting idea it's sort of a Bitcoin based version of uber so in other words uber is this great popular app everyone you I don't have to explain what it is now at this point but it is a piece of software that's owned by a company right the idea behind commuters is, to have a piece of software that is not owned by a company that operates the same way uber does it's about hooking up riders and drivers but the program operates the way bitcoin operates it's on a decentralized network of computers that's it that's the idea behind it uh it's really interesting i don't know how far they're getting with it yet it's, i was actually went online last night trying to find some updates on how they're doing and i couldn't really find anything which is never a good sign no <laughs> offense commuters i hope you make it great good luck but again interesting idea and there are a lot of interesting ideas out there you you, at some point you have to build a business on
1: it what else is an interesting idea built around blockchain
2: a lot of the hot ideas and i think these are going to be difficult to build quite frankly a lot of the 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 hot things are people want to build the platform now right Uh, I mean, the idea is uh, you look at ethereum which is essentially an operating system it's an operating system it's like android it's like ios on your mobile but it's a decentralized operating system rather than Apple owning it. For computers or for for, computers. F- for coins? for No, for computers. Uh-huh. So you would download the software, you get on the network, and then anybody who wants to build an app or a service on top of that platform builds it, and then you have access to it if you're on the Ethereum network. That's what it is. So what you have now, a lot of people, and a lot of people have raised money to build their own version of the platform so now you have this competition everybody wants to build the platform the next android
1: right android for mobile android for mobile linux but for decentralized. computers. right
2: open source decentralized uh-huh. it's a good idea but it's going to be hard you have to build up all the network effects you have to build up the community you have to build up users you have to have people coming on and building services on top of it that work uh, so that's a really that's a big bet kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's pie in the sky. I'm going to build the next Ethereum. What? Meanwhile, Ethereum is still trying to build the next
1: Ethereum. What about uh, other coins that? Which are is out Ethereum? There. I, I so you that, have, you, know. you have Bitcoin as the best There's, known.
2: Probably fifteen hundred coins, uh, really? whatever you want to call them—cryptocurrencies, tokens, coins. Yeah, yeah. There's probably is at least fifteen hundred. Not of off them. of the same blockchain. Not off the same blockchain. Uh, the idea so parallel blockchain because Bitcoin is open source software. Anybody can take that program,
1: rewrite it to their own specifications, and, and now launch you have it. A new Now coin. you have a new coin. So what are the top five coins out there?
2: Uh the top five, and I have to say, of those fifteen hundred, I would my personal bet is no more than a dozen have any chance of ever becoming Survivor. something. Most right. of them are just, you know, either they're flat out pump and dump schemes oh, really? or they're well-meaning, they're well-meaning efforts that are not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's hard to get a community of people sure. to come together and agree to use your thing. Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Litecoin are probably the four major ones. Then you have offshoots of that. You have Bitcoin Cash, which is an offshoot of Bitcoin. You have Ethereum Classic, which is an offshoot of Ethereum. Those are probably the half dozen that I think have the largest market value right now combined. Um, There are a couple others out there, but they're going to have a harder time. But that's really it. There's not... A tr- there are a lot of them out there. I think there are very few that have a real chance of kind of building a, a viable future for themselves.
1: So I have I have two more coin questions before I get to my standard questions. One is explain what forking is. Okay. And the other is uh, ICOs. So let's start with oh, forking. Okay.
2: All right. So uh, forking is it's a it's a term. It's a software term. Basically, what you're doing is. You are taking the software and you're You're updating it. You're creating a new version of it. And what you can have is a soft fork and a hard fork. In a soft fork, you are updating the software. You're coming up with a new version of it. But the older versions of the software will still work with it. Mm-hmm. Think of when Microsoft comes up with a new version of Word. You can download the new version of Word or you can keep working off your old version of Word. Right. It, they're still compatible. And it's still compatible it's still if you compatible. send documents right. back and forth. A hard fork is where there's a new version of the software, but it is incompatible with the old version of mm-hmm. the software. So say Microsoft comes out and says, well, we have a new version of Word that you have to download or the old version won't be compatible. That's a hard fork. In open source, this becomes a polit- it really becomes a political tool. Um, if there's a community that wants certain features and they're not getting them, they can hard fork the software they can come up with their own version of so the so everyone software has to either come that along has or their, not everyone has to come along or not and,
1: and ICOs
2: ICO stands for initial coin offering uh-huh uh, and this is a very nascent field it's very contentious you rolled your eyes when I asked the ICOs <laughs> it's just it's such a ripe for fraud well, it's such a great story Again, remember, everything for me is the story. It is a great, great story. It is so much fun. It's so interesting. There's so many angles to it. So An ICO's initial coin offering, it's a, it's a way for companies to, to raise money. It's mm-hmm. kind of a cross between crowdfunding and an IPO. So a startup Fair. says, what a startup says is, we have this digital product that we're building. We have this service. We are going to attach a token to it. You can buy the token and give us money. And that we're going to sell it. And that's it. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. What I think happened in 2017 was you had a price rally in Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple of the other coins. So people who were holding were making tons of money. But again, there's not much you can do with this stuff besides trade it. So they're sitting on all these paper profits, paper profits, digital profits. Right. Without much to do with it. Here comes this other trend of the ICO startup saying, hey, invest in us we could be the next hot thing. So you have a group of people who have a lot of money and nothing to do with it, and you have a group of companies over here saying we're going to be the next hot thing. Those two things merge, they bang into each other, and you have this unbelievable speculative mania. The ICO market takes off, and I think it was it was 6 billion was raised last wow. year via this method. Uh, it is. It's most
1: of which no one expects to do anything. Anything to come
2: virtually up? Virtually all of which everyone expects will be be dead money in the
1: end. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so let's get into my favorite questions. These are what I ask all of my guests. Okay. So let's jump into our favorite questions. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. I don't know. I
2: I don't know if this is the most important thing, but and I'm probably a important thing. I'm probably going to expose myself here and maybe actually, maybe people will figure this out on their own. Uh, I'm basically self taught. I didn't go to school for journalism. I didn't go to school for finance. I didn't go to school for business or economics. I was an English major. Got out of college, needed a job. And there was a newspaper in my town that was hiring. So I applied for it and I knew the rudimentary writing and editing skills. So they hired me and that was it. So I. Learned Everything I learned about journalism, I learned on the job. Everything about finance, I learned in my 20 years of working at Dow Jones and reading The Big Picture and some other blogs. That's very
1: funny. By the way, there is a long-standing argument that said all of education is a function of giving students the tools to so teach themselves
2: yeah well you know what the the tools i got i went to fairfield university in connecticut which is a jesuit school mm-hmm. and uh the jesuits give you a great education yeah. they really believe Fordham in, in new york as well right, right? for them in new york as well uh they are big on teaching you how to think how to analyze and giving you a broad introduction to everything so i got a great i actually got a great education in learning how to think which uh, you then can apply to which anything. you then can apply to anything
1: so who were some of your early mentors?
2: My early mentors were, they're going to be people you never heard of, right? My first editor was a guy named Ward Mealy. Uh, my first editor at, at the Verona Cedar Grove Times, Verona, New Jersey. My first editor at Dow Jones was this guy, Pete Rooney. And they were great mentors. They were old school journalists, right? Uh-huh. Work hard. Don't F with the news. Uh-huh. Go out and have a beer after work. This is just a job. Don't take it too seriously. hmm uh, and that was what they kind of taught they kind of taught me how journalists operate and and that was great so my the, my you know I, look i started in 1991 right i mean i started pre internet era so i have a little bit of a foot in the old the old sure. journalist world and those those guys were my early mentors and they were great guys absolutely great guys
1: uh, i picture you with the fedora with the little press thing <laughs> yeah, in, the, right. in the band of that um so you mentioned uh, you started in the 90s who were the journalists? Who were the writers? Who influenced your approach to writing?
2: Right. Uh, some of them were. Actually, let's see. Uh, you know, you can read that without glasses.
1: I'm impressed. I have
2: glasses. What are you glasses. Oh, they not <laughs> do anything without glasses anymore. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's funny. A lot of, and I'm not just trying to kiss up to you because you already gave me the interview. And I I'm imagine you're going to publish this. But no, no, uh, this is just for I loved people. I know I'm just saying I I loved the big picture, the blog. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the early aughts when you were doing it. That was that was a big influence on me. Uh James Stewart, Dennis Thieves, that sure. was a great book. Daniel Jurgen, the prize. Those were great books to read. You know, they were great storytelling. They really kind of especially Dennis Thieves got it all the craziness of the eighties that was going uh-huh. on, and uh Jurgen's whole history of the oil industry was really fascinating. So those were those are some of my early influences.
1: Tell us about this is everybody's favorite question. You mentioned Den of Thieves and the prize, right? What are some of your favorite books? Right. Uh, by the way, finance, non finance fiction, yeah. non fiction, anything.
2: Most of it's it's more fiction. My favorite, my favorite book, absolutely of all time, is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. God, I by read, by read that
1: Persick. repeatedly in college. Did you? Yeah. Yeah,
2: I did too. I mean, I not only did I read it repeatedly in college. I there was a point in my life where I was probably reading that whole book once a year. I mean, I just I, I know I people do it. that. Absolutely. So it's such a great book. Uh, that is without a doubt my favorite book. Then a lot of other. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff. I think uh, Dubliners by James Joyce is stor- short story collection. Mm-hmm. I just think that is. I think James Joyce is probably the greatest
1: English language writer ever. You are not the first person. Who no, said I'm sure that to I'm
2: not. Me. But I think he is, and and like you know uh ulysses and and it's his novels can kind of you can get lost in them they're difficult uh-huh. but the short stories are unbelievable they're great uh this is going to sound odd i guess meditations by marcus aurelius
1: ryan holiday just was talking about really that the other day Absolutely. Uh, i'm
2: i'm not kidding it's that's one of my favorite books it's in on my bookshelf I, I turn to it often have
1: you read his book the daily stoic
2: I have not, but I know who you're talking about. That is, yeah,
1: that is something you should check out if you, you like if you like Marcus if you like meditations. Yeah. Check that out. Uh,
2: you know wh- what else?
1: Give me there? one more.
2: Give me one more. <sighs> I mean, just you're giving me deep one philosophical. Hem- I know. Works. I mean, most of Hemingway, a lot of Kerouac. I think uh, Fitzgerald was a great writer. I think he was a good had a good command of the language, but I don't think he was a great storyteller. Like, I think if you look at Great Gatsby, there's no real story there, which is, I think, why all the movie adaptations fail.
1: The Rich are Different, there's your the whole The Rich are uh, Different, thing. that's the whole thing. I, I was on a flight the other day, and I had been carrying around The Old Man and the Sea. I was going to say The Old Which is only and it's like a hundred and something pages. Right. And I had this thin book in my bag for weeks, and I figured, let me just bang out the first chapter. And through uh, six hours later, we land, and I had finished the book, and I was debating going back and reading it a second H- Hemingway
2: time. Hemingway is a master
1: of the language. Master and I I think the language, people get caught and up. a master storyteller. Yes, I think
2: people get caught up in his his persona, that sort of tough guy thing, uh, and they kind of miss his ability to write. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable writer, and, and Old Man and the Sea is just—it's a master, and work. it's, it's so, beautiful. The funny yeah.
1: thing is, it's so sensitive and so perceptive. Right. It stands in stark contradiction to that exactly. tough guy, exactly. hard drinking, yep. womanizing yep. persona. No, no,
2: Hemingway is. I think Hemingway is a great writer.
1: Yeah, I, again, not the first person to have, <laughs> yeah. uh, to have said that with me. Um, well, give me one other Hemingway. book. if you, if someone says, "Hey, I've read uh, *Old Man in the Sea*. What else should I read by Hemingway?" The That's-
2: first one I read by Hemingway that I really fell in love with when I was. 15, a sophomore in high school, was Sun Also Rises, uh-huh. I knew which was interesting. At the time, I, but you know what's funny is at the time, I really didn't understand half of what was going on in that book. I was right. 15 years old. Uh, I was just entranced by the yeah, writing. Yeah, that's too young. That's yeah, I was too young. young. I went back and read it years later and, and kind of caught everything I was missing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all his all his early novels before 1930, I mean, Sun Also Rises, uh, Farewell to Arms. Well, that's
1: a masterpiece, um, clearly. What's
2: the one set in the Spanish Civil War and blanking on the name now.
1: Right. Uh, I will Obviously famous. Oh, for whom the bell tolls. Right. For whom the bell tolls.
2: Yeah, I mean those are all great works. And his early short story collections are great too.
1: They're very very good. Yeah. I really like his short
2: stories. So, uh, I'm a big Hemingway
1: fan. Um so since you joined finance, what has changed? <sighs> since you joined financial can, I mean, can we talk about journalism right yeah that's what since I me, joined let me ask that question again. yeah oh to have and have not is to have and the, have not such a spectacular yeah. yes. movie too right um, since you joined financial journalism, what has changed in that industry? So I'll tell you what I'll
2: broaden it a little bit. I'll just talk about journalism because since I joined the journalism industry in 1991, what has really changed? You know, I, the answer you want to give is, well, everything's changed. What has really changed is the business model, mm-hmm. the business model of journalism. And, and it's funny. When I got in, we were still we were making the pages by hand.
1: We Which is pr- amazing.
2: We were printing out the pages. We had a big piece of oak tag on a light table. We would cut out the stories with an exacto knife and glue them to the page. I did that in
1: college. Yeah,
2: that's I, when I, I got into journal. That. That's what we did. But journalism hasn't really changed. The the business, the what journalism's, you know, model is goal is has not changed. What has changed is the business model. The business model was blown to smithereens by the Internet. The idea that you could create a product, a hard product, a newspaper, sell ads in it and make a business on that is gone. The Wall Street Journal does a wonderful newspaper. It really does. I love our newspaper. The Times does a great newspaper. That, that is a business model that has been blown to hell. And in my mind, nobody has actually figured out what the new business model is.
1: I I think that the two papers you named, along with the Washington Post and the FT, that have a paywall up, that charge for online access, yeah. that's the model. And, and it looks like the whole fake news and the whole Facebook, Twitter, uh, real fake news, not... What the president calls fake news, right. but actual Russian bots and propaganda, other, pro, propaganda. other nonsense. Uh, if
2: fake news has become this kind of buzzy, right. hot troll-driven. Tr- it's, it's, it's propaganda, and it is.
1: I'm hoping that sends more people into the arms of yeah. the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, FT, because I've written about noise, I've written about signal. You can't just take something off the web and say, "Oh, I read it on the internet." That's a joke now. Right. You know, it's so maybe that will imbue to the benefit of the big. Well, producers.
2: because you know, I, I think it's interesting in that we think we're living in such a different time, and everything's different, everything's changed, and, and it really hasn't. The tools have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians have always lied. Go Political frame. parties have always spread you know, lies about their opponents. I mean, these things are not new. What's the new is how readily you right. can influence and people. And the job of journalism has always been to independently verify facts, to independently tell the truth as best as we can get to it at that time. That has not changed, and that will continue to be what our business is. The problem is just trying to do that profitably. And I think... What you're you know you can see uh, ProPublica is a really interesting effort. The Washington Post, look what the Washington Post did. That was a big publicly traded company that bought a lot of pieces when things were hot. Things turned in, things turned south. They went private. They sold off a lot of the business. They got back to their core. Buys them. Bezos. They got back to their core, which is Washington.
1: Right. No, no doubt about that.
2: And so the the business what uh, what we do hasn't changed. Trying to figure out a way to do it profitably—that is a big challenge for us right now.
1: Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. <laughs>
2: uh, a time I failed. So for a while in the '90s and I guess the early aughts, I thought I was going to make a career as a screenwriter. <laughs> really? Yeah, I did. I thought I love movies. I like telling stories. I'm going to be a screenwriter. I have you that. Have you written a screenplay? I've written like ten. Uh, you know bought some software, read some books, tried to figure out what's the money. how had to write a screenplay, wrote a bunch of them, never sold one, never uh, got close. Any of them on so cryptocurrency? One day, no, uh, this is before was before Bitcoin. This was before Bitcoin. So one day I'm walking down the street in New York City. If this really happened. I'm walking down the street in New York City. A guy comes walking up the street. He's on his cell phone. And, he, and I hear him say this. He says, I've got one day to get a script to Steve Buscemi and I've got a million dollars. And I my first thought was, I've... I've got a script. (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, this is opportunity walking up the street at you. Guy says I've got a million dollars. I need to get a script to Steve Buscemi. And I'm thinking I have a script. And I literally within within five seconds is how fast it went. I literally talked myself out of going up to the guy and saying, I've got your script right now. I I said, And that was the end of your screenwriting career. Maybe my script isn't right for Steve Buscemi. I don't know if he's the best character. Would he really be interested in it? I don't know. Opportunity walked up the street at me. And walked right by. And I talked myself out of it. Why did I talk myself out? That's hilarious. Why didn't I just, who cares if it's right for Steve Buscemi? Like, here's a guy looking to buy a script. I've got a script. Talk to him. And I didn't do it. And I regretted it my whole life. And it, uh, how That led I, to the books. How I learned from it is it led to the books. That's When I realized Bitcoin was a story, I was not going to let it go. You
1: were not going to get Steve Buscemi on gonna, Bitcoin. I was
2: not going to Steve Buscemi myself again.
1: Tell us the sort of advice you would give to a millennial or someone who just graduated college who said, I'm interested in becoming a journalist or a writer.
2: Yeah, I would say it's really, it's, it's two words, don't stop. Don't don't stop. And it's funny. I learned this. I actually learned, you know, you talk about tennis Uh, for a while. I was running. I was jogging. Uh And what I realized jogging was that as long as I didn't give up, I could build up my endurance, whether I ran. For 10 minutes or for an hour, whether I felt good, I felt bad, I was into it, I wasn't into it. As long as I kept doing it and convinced myself I was going to keep doing it, I would get better at it. So if I didn't run for a day, if I didn't run for two days, if I didn't run for a week, I was going to go back to it and keep doing it. And I did that for a while and eventually I got pretty good at it. And I realized too, like in your career, that is the only thing you can control is is, is you, right? Right. Don't stop, uh, especially in journalism. Journalism is a war of attrition. I have seen a sure. lot of good writers over the years just give up and get out of the business. It's not an easy business. It's not a particularly lucrative business. It's hard to do. If you really want to do it, though, and if you love it, if you're a writer, if Keep you're a just don't stop.
1: And our last question. Tell us what it is you know about writing uh, and the markets today that you wish you knew Back in 1991 when you began.
2: I mean, one thing, this is going to sound very cliche, but but there is, there is no substitute for experience. And it kind of goes back to what we were both saying. 25 years ago, I was a bad writer. And the only way I was going to get good at writing was by writing for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. There's literally no other way to get good at writing but by writing. Did you not and know that 25 a very years long time. ago? No, I thought I was a good writer. Really, I thought I was a good writer. My very first story, I interviewed three guys who were at Pearl Harbor the day it was bombed. So we were doing a 50th anniversary and there were three guys at the local VFW who were at Pearl Harbor the day it was bombed. And I interviewed them on December 7th, 1941 and I wrote the story, and I thought it was a- 91.
1: You interviewed them on 91. I, I
2: interviewed them in 91. Pearl Harbor About was- About 30 14, years 41. earlier. No, 50 years earlier.
1: 50, that's right, 50, 50 years 50 years, years earlier.
2: So I interviewed them. I wrote the story. I thought it was a really good story. I was like, oh, this is such a good story. Uh, I have gone back to read that story. It's a terrible story. <laughs> it's not good. Not for the guys. The guys gave me great stories. They were at Pearl Harbor. The story itself is terrible. There was no Your way- Your writing could ever, is terrible. Me, my writing that
1: terrible. That's amazing. I missed your um, you did rollout event yes. at the New York Museum of uh, Finance. It's, it's Is that the right?
2: it's the Museum of American Finance, Museum of American downtown Fi- on Wall Street. And
1: you, what was that an event? there was a well uh, we were going
2: to have it at the museum uh they had some water damage so we couldn't do it there when they get that fixed up i I encourage everyone to go to the museum oh my god it's great it's absolutely great so we held it up at uh fordham law school in lincoln center Mm -hmm. and it was uh you know it was a, a launch event but we had a uh we had a you know, one of these "quote unquote" fireside chats, uh-huh. uh, which Mike conducted with Joe Lubin, who is a co-founder of Ethereum, which is another cryptocurrency right. platform. And then we had a panel discussion, which was myself, your colleague Josh Brown, right, and the Winklevoss twins, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss. The Winklevi is what the we Winklevi yes, plural, yes, right. yes. Now, so I we have talked to, about that actually, you, and, oh, really? and yes, I gave you a hard time for not you coming. gave
1: me grief. It was Tuesdays. I have a standing date on Tuesdays. So
2: Unbelievable. Yeah, I leaned over to Josh before we started, and I said, Is Barry coming? And he said, no, no, it's, it's Tuesday. And I was like, <laughs> so, what?
1: what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I have to, you gave me grief, but I really have to share why that was an issue. Yes. So I am very late to the game of tennis. I picked it up in my... Mid 50s. Okay. Right. I'm, and I'm only in my mid 50s. Right. And there's a longer story uh, about a younger, much dumber 14 year old version of myself being offered tennis lessons by my mom and saying, Tennis? Who plays tennis? Yeah. 14 year old idiot. So anyway, I start playing and. Uh, this is really a bizarre digression. But since you've been you tortured me about it I did torture on Twitter, you. I have to explain this. So No, it was private. I didn't give you a hard on, time. On no, no, you DM'd me, which was worse. Publicly, okay. people can trash yeah. me and I laugh. But privately it's like, oh, he really means this. I start playing tennis and if you've never really played before, but you have some eye hand coordination and have played other sports like baseball yeah. You feel like you can hit the ball wherever you want. And I could place the ball anywhere in the court. I could catch that back line anytime I want. Yeah. When I'm playing with other newbies, then you start progressing and you start playing with people who have some skills. And you're a competitive guy, so you want
2: to. You want to be in that group. They're
1: hitting the ball with some power, and suddenly merely swinging back doesn't get it done. And you start to learn – you have to have the right mechanics of your swing, the distance to the ball, the footwork. There are all these things, and it it's classic metacognition, a la Dunning Kruger, yeah. where as you get better so- at something, you develop the ability to self evaluate. Right? You ask most people, "Are you a decent driver?" And you know how many people are above average drivers in a room. Eighty percent of the hands go up. Most of them, right. I assure you, are not. not. So I be, I, I, I be, am, I am among the group. That I have, I, I have become that. skilled enough at tennis to know I suck. <laughs> yeah. Right, that is a skill set to be able to say right. honestly, oh, I really have a lot of work to mm-hmm. do. So a friend who I was playing with, who also sucked, disappears for a few weeks, and he comes back, and we were pretty head to head, evenly matched, and he starts. Running me off the court, I'm like, dude, where did this come from? I got a new guy. I'm taking lessons from. You can't get in to see him. He's sold out. He coaches. Was that a lie? No, no, it's absolutely oh, true. Really? He wasn't he just coaches trying to keep, uh, an all, advantage over like you. Like the top people at a particular tennis facility. So one day. Uh, and so I, I ask, hey, you know, I'd like to take, my friend said he's taking lessons with you. I'd like to take a lesson. He's like, sorry, I'm booked. That was it. So a couple of weeks go by and I'm still getting my ass kicked. This is like a year ago. Yeah. eight months ago. And maybe it was September, October, I get a text on my phone. Hey, I had a cancellation. If you want to take a lesson tonight, I'm free. So I go in August, September, I go take a lesson. The next day I, I'm playing with a bunch of people and they're like, and by the way, the lesson was just one of those things where just a few little mechanical changes, keep your elbow down, turn this direction, make sure your shoulders are left, like stupid things that I can't believe, in hindsight, nobody else told me. Um, and you're unaware of the, the I think it's called proprioception perception, where your various body parts are in space. Yeah. So the next day I go in and I just, amongst my, you know, the junior crew, I do really well, and I ping him back and said that was a great lesson. Let's uh, let's do another one. He's like, "Listen, I'm fully booked. I, I teach six days a week. If you want a lesson, if somebody drops out, I'll get." But but you're committing to that space every Tuesday right. at, at seven o'clock for forever or or for a year. So I'm like, I'm willing to do that because my you're game. Uh, you add, tw- you made me twenty percent better in one lesson, and I understand the rules of diminishing returns, but. I'm in, yeah. you get a cancellation, I'm there. So a few weeks later go by, I get a cancellation, and now I have to commit to him right. for so the next Tuesday, six months. So no Tuesday at 7, on, listen.
2: If I had the Pope on the panel, w- would you have blown off the tennis I thing like for the this pope?
1: pope, but you have to extend my uh, regrets, absolutely. Wow, wow. And, and by the way, I'm not like a guy who's been playing tennis for 40 years and I'm insane. Yeah. I've been playing for three years and wish I'd been playing for 40 years. So I feel like I have a lot of... Stuff to make up. That's five minutes of tennis that nobody who's listening to this gives a flying. Well, you know, fig if about. In, if you
2: want to make it, if you want to make it interesting and not just a funny anecdote, I, I do think it's interesting that in your mid fifties you decided to pick up something that is brand new. Well, I can't that play you basketball will never Be anymore. a pro at obviously. No, uh, I, no offense, but I mean, I think that is. So, I think that's a thing that people kind of lose as they. And I'm 50 too, folks, so I'm not like in my 30s. Yeah. You know, I, I think people lose the interest in new things and oh I think no that's i'm a fascinated problem. i think that really is a problem No,
1: i'm, I'm fascinated by new things yeah. but i'm sad when old things go away so i used to play softball baseball and softball and you hit a certain age and you just can't do that anymore yeah. i used to play basketball I, I i have i have some i have some uh i got game <laughs> and i remember like mid-30s rolling my ankle and usually the next day, you're, and it just takes days and days yeah. and weeks to heal. And finally, at forty, you know, you're fatter, you're slower, you win, you're. you're so uh, there's there's lots of stuff with that. One last tennis thing. Could, tennis, could,
2: you we haven't lost any listeners. They're still. Oh, they're, they're gone. They're, it's no, just, no, no, they're not, dude. It's just the two of them. They're still here. So tennis, still here.
1: tennis has ruined the Matrix for me. The original the Matrix movie, the Matrix? sure. Tennis because if you because if you remember the movie, The Matrix, yeah. the scene on the roof where he's leaning back sure. and the bullets are going by and she has to jump into the Yui and fly the helicopter and she calls in, hey, uh, tank, I don't know how to fly a Yui, hold on, and they download and now she could, and it turns out that's not true. Hypothetically, if you're in any sort of computer simulation and someone could download a skill set, and I have watched enough of Dartfish, which is an online collection of of uh, basically every tennis stroke by every major player. You, you want to see how Federer serves? You want to see how Agassi backhands? You want to see it's all there. <laughs> it's an incredible service. It's effectively free. I don't know how they do this. But anyway, intellectually, I understand exactly how to do a backhand, how to do a forehand, a a drop shot, but actually developing the muscle memory to convert your intellectual understanding of the mechanics of a specific stroke to executing that stroke is this giant gap. You have to realize,
2: too, the matrix is not a real place. It is a computer program. They're not manipulating their bodies. They're manipulating digits, it's all
1: digits. I, I completely, it shouldn't be
2: ruined for you. I completely it understand not be ruined that for you.
1: But even within, they're the, not in
2: the physical world. They're inside a computer program. So the muscles they're manipulating are also digital. So it even is not within, real. so, so then world. within the simulation. Yes, within the simulation. I can't believe this conversation has. Within to the this simulation,
1: point, there isn't even a. Then why have a fight? Because all you're going to do is download various fighting techniques, and so. Uh, everybody ends up with the same various things either skill matters right, but the point is that
2: most people in the program don't realize they're in the program this is only a small group of people who have figured out they can manipulate the program but the
1: agents who are within the program do programs, know it's a program but right. they're programs they know they're part they don't of the program exist, they, they know no, they are programs they don't exist
2: in the right, real world that's right right so so theoretically until agent Smith of course busts out and, right the, but theoretically and the sequels, so the sh- shouldn't oh shouldn't God.
1: every agent have at least this the downloadable skill set that they do which is
2: why until neo comes right they're unbeatable that's why they say to neo if you see an agent run because the agents were unbeatable mm-hmm. until neo who is the one and i hate that whole like chosen. well there's child a little jesus element movies. to it's it it's just there's so a- overdone uh anyhow
1: but but to well, me are we talking about bitcoin <laughs> so so let's we'll, we'll bring this back to bitcoin, bitcoin to we're, tennis, we're discussing to digital technologies and the application of yeah. them so you gave me grief about not coming and the whole the tennis, launch event right the whole tennis thing is i made a commitment on tuesdays i uh, there is a sunk cost i'm paying for the uh lesson whether right. i'm there or not so I sort of feel like an obligation to. Uh, yeah. Plus, I respect your commitment to your game. Uh, you know what? I there are there are things that I am interested in that I know I have skills or abilities. I may not be able to win a Formula One race, but I get on a track and hold my own with. Uh, just about any other amateur. Yeah. I I I wish I had more track time. That's what another area You're I'm a big fascinated car guy. by. I know that? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's If you ever get a chance, go to Lime Rock. Take a uh uh an advanced driving course. Um, they're amazing. You realize you don't. Most people think they know how to drive. You discover again back to the metacognition. Oh, really? I could keep a car in a lane, and I can make a left turn but I really don't have the ability to manage a car in a variety of, so uh, you you run through this whole, so I like being competent at things, I like being good at things, and it was frustrating to find something that was fun that I sucked at, and the better I got, the more I realized how poor I was. Like with each additional skill that was added, it was, oh, really? So you think like on a scale of 1 to did 10, you, I'm a 5, and suddenly you realize, no, no, you're a 5 on a scale of 1 to 100. Did you ever find that early?
2: Because now, obviously, I mean, if you host a show called Masters in Business, you should be a master yourself. But I mean, in your early in your career in the markets, did you ever find that dynamic, that same dynamic? <sighs>
1: um, that's an interesting question. I, I, I've talked about this before the training you get, I started as a trader and the mm-hmm. trading you get is essentially they throw you in the deep end of the pool and whoever drowns isn't a trader anymore <laughs> and so the people who managed to and you one of the things i picked up quickly was cut your losses short but when you're winning uh loss was i felt the loss very intensely and and would would if anything, cut my losses too fast. You want to cut them quickly, but not instantaneously. Mm-hmm. So you eventually iterate and get better and better. But I was more fascinated, not by that process, but why the people around me on the long trading desk who were effectively all doing the same thing, how come this person's making money this month and last month he lost money? How come that reversed? Last money, last month that guy was losing money, this month he's making it. And I... It set me down the rabbit hole of behavioral finance, and and hmm. so so. I was a decent trader. I made decent amount of money, but it was very volatile and inconsistent. Um, I liked it, maybe a little too much. I loved it. It was it was you know looking for a vein, yeah. and so all of that stuff ends up going to well. If you want to have a career in finance. You're going to make your wife crazy if you stay uh, uh, as a trader. <laughs> right. So move to research, move to market analysis so that you'll make less base money, but more consistently, and she won't I'm not a stress monkey. Yeah. She is. So it's like, oh, I'm. I lo- hey, honey, how was today? Oh, I lost 100 grand, and she would go throw up. Right. No, no, you don't understand. That happens all the time. I'm up 100. I'm down 100. Yeah. Stuff happens. And they don't care about that. No. She, she Most would, people don't care. She's about a them. teacher. She wants ready, right. steady. Like yeah. the thought of you lost four cars or half a house, what's wrong with you? Right. Well, sometimes a position goes against you and you have limits of, of how much you're willing to accept losses. And, you know, it, it's everybody's style is different. And all of that led to where we are today. Yeah. And by the way, P.S., if you go back and listen to the early versions of Masters in Business, I find they're unlistenable. Oh. They're terrible. Yes. <laughs> Only because- I, I have that with a lot of my old stuff. Do you go back and read some of your own writing? Listen, I think they're Bailout Nation, un- if unbeatable. I was writing it today- I would have adopted a much more dispassionate tone. Yeah. I would have been a little less flamboyant in some of the You probably
2: would have asked me to be your co-author instead of Aaron, right?
1: Aaron was not my co-author. Aaron was my editor. Oh, he was your who editor. Who kept me from having these long rambling digressions yeah. about Tess. things like Who is great. Tennis I'm, only, I'm joking a lot. A- Aaron, Aaron is, Aaron is, is a wonderful editor and
2: So, so no, but I do find that I things that I wrote Early in my career, uh, the videos that I made early, because I did a, a live show for the journal for a while, all the early stuff, I go back now and I cringe. I, I just cringe. I can't stand it. I actually can't stand it. I don't like it. I don't like who I was. It's funny because I have that experience. You get criticisms and you think, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. I'd be that person now criticizing me i have that
1: experience every five years or so every now it's five to ten years where you look back what you were doing five years ago and you say oh what i'm doing and whatever it is radio writing managing Mm -hmm. assets what whatever constructing portfolios i'm so much better at x y and z today than five years ago and i assume five years from now i'm going to look back and say what were you doing in twenty eighteen talking about tennis and tra- right, trading? Right. It's you you clearly have have no idea how to host a radio show. Right. And I will tell you this. Twenty twenty
2: three Barry is right. looking is looking at this right now oh. and he's like, Oh my god, this is terrible. Everyone stop listening.
1: Oh, it's horrific. It's, I um, hope no. I hope
2: people are still listening. So we we'll do to have some stuff right,
1: right. We'll move this to the end so people who hang out get You the did tennis, have some interesting uh, questions for me. One last for thing me. about metacognition I want to share with you. If you've ever done live radio with somebody who's a pro, when I watch Tom Keene run a constant, with the producer in your ear, right. counting down 10 seconds to the commercial, five, four, three, two, one. 4, 1, live commercials, live billboards, live throws to people mm-hmm. on the floor of the exchange. And he does it flawlessly, seamlessly. People don't appreciate how skilled the pros are Because you just assume, hey, how hard is it to get on a mic and go blah, blah, blah for an hour. But when you actually watch the balls in the air, the moving targets, the precision in which the timing is done, you realize these guys are amazing. And after 30 years, you certainly should be good, but they're astonishing, astounding. No, no, Tom's great. And I think you have to realize, too,
2: he has a team around him. Sure. He has a team. He has producers. He has people on the floor. He has people in the control writers. room. He has researchers. I mean, that is a huge team, and all those efforts get funneled through Tom Keene. But you and don't. He has to be able to maintain that, right? And he does. He's great. I mean, Keane's a total pro. He's great. But
1: the listener doesn't see it. They just no. Hear the listener Tom's doesn't see it. They hear they Tom's assume. voice, right? So that that's what I keep, Why I keep coming back to dunning Kruger. You have to get to a certain point where you can understand exactly what goes in and how much you suck at it. Yeah. So the joke is, wait, you host a podcast where you interview people? You're a ter- My wife says I'm a terrible listener or something like that. I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. So that's the joke. So now we're going to go back in time. And Let's do go the, back in uh, time. We have been speaking with Paul Vigna. He is the author and co-author with Mike Casey of two books, the first being The Age of Cryptocurrency, the second being the truth machine, blockchain and the future of everything. If you enjoyed this rambling and digressive conversation, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 200 such conversations we've had about uh, the art of the backstroke and the drop. Um, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our Booker producer. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.